I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of UpZoned. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm a planner at Gould Evans. And today I'm joined by Chuck Marone, our regular co-host. Welcome back, Chuck. I feel like it's been a couple of weeks. How have you been? Hey, thanks, Abby. I've been great. I, I have been, it has been a couple of weeks because I've been doing some travel. But um, yeah, back uh, and uh, enjoying the last gasp of winter here in Minnesota. The family and I are, are headed to Florida right after we're done doing this for a, a, a spring break vacation. And hopefully it won't be too insane there. I've, I've heard that like everybody from Minnesota is now going to Florida in the next couple of weeks. So <laughs> we'll see. It might be insane. Well, or it might be I'm, very boring, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm extremely jealous. I'm not doing a spring break this year. Although I guess going to Oklahoma City in a couple of weeks for the CNU conference is a bit of a a spring break, if you want to call it that. Yeah, that's right. We're going to hang out there and uh, we'll we'll think of it that way. How about that? Yes. Yes. I will pretend that that is my spring break. Um, (laughs) It's a city I've never been to. So so it's new and that'll be be pretty fun. So we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's quite charming. It's delightful. I, I like I like Oklahoma City, and they're doing a lot of great things. So it's kind of fun to be having CNU there. You know, whenever you, whenever we have CNU, it's a chance to get out and experience a place. And so, you know, you will get as part of the CNU a more intimate view of Oklahoma City than 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 you would get, you know, as as a traveler or what have you. And gosh, I really enjoy that aspect of that group of people, you know, so we will have fun and we'll go to the pub crawl together and, you know, do all the events together and we're going to record a podcast and we got all kinds of fun stuff planned. Yes. All kinds of fun stuff planned. Very excited. So the article that we are going to be covering today is called Drill Baby Drill is America's Only Idea. This was published in Vice by Aaron Gordon. So basically, the thesis of this is in response to the rapidly rising costs of gas prices recently, um, which they've been rising for a couple of months now, but now they're they're really kind of shocking at this point. The author's thesis is that this is not something that hasn't happened before. This has happened. This happens once every decade or so, and Americans freak out over it. But we never really commit to any any kind of change that would impact the fundamental dynamics that make this such a problem to begin with. Um, so, what are those dynamics? I think. The first is that we rely very heavily on foreign sources of oil and gasoline. We require the oil and gasoline to be cheap and readily available. And even more fundamentally, we've basically built our entire society around around those two things, that we would just have access to cheap and readily available oil. Um, And that's why oil and gas prices are such a problem for people. Uh, they not only impact the cost of individuals to commute to their jobs and access basic necessities, but 
These costs also impact the cost of moving things around the country and producing food. Our country is literally run on cheap oil. (laughs) So as this article points out, these are not necessarily new revelations. These are talking points every time we have a crisis like this. Yet once gas prices go back down and the anxiety cools off, the subsequent pattern has been to go back to business as usual, pretty much. This is what you would call, I think, a fragile system. (laughs) Unless we're actually able to do something about the fragility of our system, it seems like this cycle will keep repeating, I guess, until it can't. Um, And Chuck, I'm sure you feel very vindicated now as somebody who, (laughs) you know, perhaps could be described as a mild prepper. Wanted to see if I could (laughs) get some of the gas that you've been storing. (laughs) (laughs) So once again, you are vindicated. (laughs) Have I said that? Have I said that publicly? I I don't know. I do do have like 60 gallons of gas uh, in my garage just because I'm, yeah, I'm I'm a mild version of a prepper, right? So yeah. Do I release the Marone Strategic Petroleum Reserve for my family's <laughs> use? Um, uh, maybe not yet. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the most resilient thing that I've done is not store gas in my garage. Um, the most resilient thing I've done is actually have a lifestyle where I don't need that much gas. I mean, I if if you took my kids going to dance, which is out, you know way on the outskirts of town. Occasionally going to visit my parents, who also live in a similar place. I don't use gas at all. I mean, I I can go weeks without driving. I go to the airport, uh, which is down many hours, two you know over two hours away. Uh, so I do have you know those trips that I do, but it's very common for my car to just sit in one place for a long time. That's my own personal resiliency. Like I don't need it. But I remember in 2008 when I was living in a very different place and, and my lifestyle then would require me to fill my car up a couple times a week. Uh, when gas prices got over $4 a gallon, it was really, really intense. Um, I remember feeling that. My wife is a reporter and I remember at the time she did a series of articles about people who were hypermilers. I don't know if you know what a hypermiler is. I don't think I've ever heard of that. Okay. It's it's actually fascinating and I, I find it kind of fun in, in an engineering kind of way. Um, they are people who drive regular automobiles but get uh, out of them massive uh, improvements in miles per gallon, the, the fuel efficiency. And they do this by the way that they drive. So they will accelerate slowly. They will decelerate slowly. They try to use their brakes as little as possible. They will, you know, just basically like the way they go about choosing their routes and doing things. Uh, you can take a car that would get 30 miles an hour and get it up to 50 miles per hour or miles per gallon uh, by doing hypermiling techniques. And so, you know, there was this like people out doing that in 2008. And the premise of this article is that we go through these cycles where we panic and freak out and then things get back to normal. And I remember in 2008, like you could buy an SUV a lot cheaper. You could buy a Hummer like really cheap because no one wanted them, right? Because, oh my gosh, it's just a gas guzzler. And then I remember in 2013 or 14, seeing the Hummers back on the street again. And thinking, yeah, we're just right back to where we started. And I, 
I feel there's something very human about that, you know, like there's something very human, but, but I also think there's something, uh, and let me put it this way. I think this is what culture is about. I think these are the kind of things, if you, if you look back at like cultures historically, and a lot of times we'll look and we'll be like, well, that's antiquated. Like, why would they do that? What a bunch of backward people. And you're like, what a weird culture. But you recognize that that culture suffered some deep trauma at some point that they learned like this deep cultural lesson about. And they, they developed these like taboos. The one that comes to my mind right now, it, it, there's been in economic circles, some frustration with Germany for not being willing to, you know, engage in kind of the monetary practices that the rest of the world has been doing, printing money, uh, taking on debt, assuming the the debts of Greece and Spain and Italy and spreading those out over the entire EU. And Germany's been very sensitive to things that would cause inflation. And we're kind of like, well, why? That's backward. That's antiquated. They're They're not, you know, modernize your economics thinking. And you realize that the German culture was deeply, deeply impacted by the Weimar Republic inflation and how that led to Hitler and how that led to the insanity of World War II and, and really their decimation as a country. You can tie these things together. And so they have these weird cultural ticks. Our weird cultural tick right now is our addiction you know, to, to the automobile, our addiction to our development pattern, our um, dependency on low gas prices. And as you suggest, it makes us really, really fragile. And I, I do think that there will be a generation in the future that will experience a sudden shift that is not reversible. So that would today look like for us going to $15 a gallon gas that never goes back below 10. That, that would be a sudden like irreversible shift that would damage us deeply as a country, damage like our psyche or who we were. And we would develop a whole new set of cultural norms about, uh, you know, about fuel efficiency and waste and, and, you know, things that, that we're just not prepared to do today. The article seemed to be like fatalistic, like, you know, this is just how we're broken. And I think there's a part of me that's a little bit fatalistic too, in the sense that I think we're just human and this is the culture we live in. And until there's a shock that changes us out of that culture, our tendency is always going to be to go back to the same well. Yeah, I think we young people can have a, I'm just assuming this person is young because, because it's vice, but we do have this kind of habit of being very fatalistic about um, the way we see the world. And there's a lot of reasons for that, obviously. I do feel like there's so many things right now that feel out of the control of our us as individuals. And I think it's really important to kind of think about like, the age old saying, think globally, act locally, and even act independently in some respects in terms of making, shifting your lifestyle in a sense around being more resilient. I think that that just really requires each of us as individuals to really think about how we can, you know, first starting with ourselves and our families, you know, reduce our dependence on things that we cannot control as much and kind of work our way up from that. 
I think the first step is really considering geographic context of where you're living. You know, for me personally, living in a place that is not far from where I work um, and also near a water system is an intentional choice personally. Living in a place that is walkable is an intentional choice as well. Um, you know, the value of geography kind of varies widely depending on where people are at and what their own personal needs are. You know, somebody may choose to live out in the country on a farm and be self-sustaining that way. Um, I think both can really work, but I just think it's important to kind of consider what options are available to you depending on what your lifestyle is and what your needs are and, and you know, what basically the context you're living in provides to you. And also just having strong relationships with the people you live around is really a fundamental piece of that. Um, those, are, to me, are all things that you can control for the most part yourself. Um, I understand that there are limitations to everything, but it, it you know we look at kind of these like global crises and wars, and it just feels like you know we can't control it and and that's probably because we can't as individuals <laughs> you know that's just the reality and so thinking more about what we can do um in response to that is and and basically creating more options for ourselves is is really the way i see is is the way to respond to that i think that's right and i've lived my life that way but i don't know is it's a broadly accepted notion in society Maybe it is, and maybe I'm being too cynical. You know, you, you were describing, you know, living out in the on a farm in the middle of nowhere and being resilient. As you said that, it's it it occurred to me that the most codependent I've been with my neighbors. I grew up on a farm. I when I got married, moved to a five acre lot in like a suburban community. And I now live on a very small lot in an urban neighborhood in the middle of town. The most like dependent on my neighbors and the most like uh, communing with my neighbors and working with my neighbors and being part of their lives and have them being part, a meaningful part of my life that I've ever had was living on the farm. There are no farmers who are really farmers who, you know, it's not like a corporate undertaking, but are like true like farmers that are not wholly dependent on their neighbors. Because when, you know, the when we cut the hay and it was going to rain, uh, we needed to get it in quick and we needed the neighbor to come over and help. And when they had trouble with their tractor, you know, we had to go over, my dad knew how to fix it and he'd go help them. We were in a like the true like codependent sense, we were helping each other out. We we needed each other to make it. Um, in town now, I experience this to a degree as well. You know, but it, it's less like our our food depends on it, and our livelihood depends on it, and it's more just like our quality of life depends on it. You know, I help my neighbors clear their sidewalks. I also walk the sidewalk, so I get a little bit of benefit from that myself. But you know, I'm trying to help them out, that kind of thing. You know, they watch my house when we go on vacation. We watch their house when they're not around, that kind of that kind of stuff. I think of my grandfather who, you know, grew up during the Great Depression, was a Marine in World War II. Um, his whole life was this kind of weird aberration to me. I would, him and I would go for walks 
And it was like quirky old grandpa. We'd be going for a walk and he would pick up all the aluminum cans on the road as we would go. And when we would get back to his house, he would crush them all and put them in a thing. And then when he got enough, he would take it to the recycling place and get like $4.23 for this cans. And I was kind of like, grandpa, like, why? Like, what are you doing? You know? But you realize that his worldview was shaped by these kind of traumatic events that he lived through. And he could never throw away food. He could never throw away a tin can. He, you, you would almost call him like a hoarder. He wasn't a hoarder in the sense that he went out and collected things, but he was like this very prudent, frugal, ridiculously frugal kind of person who, you know, in an age of abundance seemed like an old curmudgeonly anachronism. I look at my daughters and my daughters are, you know, we have to protect the climate, dad, and we have to do these things for the good of the earth. And we need to be more socially conscious and we need to do all this. And then can I borrow the car? Cause I'm going to go to the Starbucks drive through And I'm like, well, it's six blocks away. Why don't you walk? And they're like, oh, we don't walk. You know, like all our friends drive through the drive through you know? And I'm like, well, you got coffee here. Like you want to make coffee? You know, no, it's not the same. And it's easy to laugh at them, right? I think that that is, you know, uh, looking at the, you know, the 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 sliver in their eye and and not looking at the beam in my own. Like I get that, but it's. I think if we step back and recognize, we have created a economy, a lifestyle, a culture based around accelerating levels of consumption, accelerating levels of. Uh, you know, economic intensity and that the way we have chosen to sustain that culture is by having ever accelerating rates of energy consumption, whether that is coming from fossil fuels or nuclear energy or whatever, we require that as a base function of our continued prosperity. And many, many smart people uh, left and right, political, politically, non-political, scientific, non-scientific, hippie, deeply, you know, mathematic, have, have said for a long time that this system will not end well. It will end in deep trauma. And I feel like these things that we go through every now and then with gas prices and energy is like those heart palpitations people say they get before they get the heart attack. You know, it's like, well, I'm a I don't feel good. I'm slowing down. It, it, you know, I'm getting these things. And it's a warning signal to like, you have to actually change something fundamental about what you do, or this is not going to end well. And I, I don't know. I mean, there's a certain, I'm, I'm using too many biblical references today. I was going to say, Job, like walking through Nineveh going, everything's going to go bad. Like this is not going to work. Repent now today. And, and those people are generally not listened to, you know, you hear that in the old Testament because it's a human thing, right? It's not a, it's not like American culture is, you know, broken in ways that humans have not been broken in the past. This is a repeating human thing, Right. Right. And, you know, I think when, when, you know, the cost of transportation goes up, the, kind of the first inclination is drill, baby, drill. I mean, as the article is saying, that is kind of the game plan for people 
Um, it's not really, you know, a lot of people don't want to change their lifestyle. They don't want to live closer to where they work. Uh, they don't want to walk to Starbucks. <laughs> they want to drive there. I mean, it's we've become so reliant on that as part of our our culture, really, and our lifestyle, the way we do things. I think that the point you just made is really important, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put it in this context, and I I want you to react to it. I'm not trying to be partisan here, but I I think it's a fair insight to say the party of the Green New Deal, the party that you know. We need to stop oil pipelines. We need to, you know, and I'm, I like, I get, I, I understand it. Like, I'm, I'm, I get where they're at. But what would be the effect of the Green New Deal? Wouldn't it be four dollar gas, five dollar gas? Wouldn't it be more expensive energy? I mean, isn't that kind of like because we're trying to shift to like a different thing? And it, it, it's, it's amazing to me that the immediate reaction of the leadership that is you know, adjacent to that kind of core mindset of where energy prices should be. When we get into this crisis, the very first thing they do is release our own petroleum reserve to try to, you know, tamp down futures prices. And the second thing they do is make calls to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and say, will you please pump more oil? You know, and and to me, it just says something about not the politics of this. It says something about the fact that even people who are sensitive to the fossil fuel conversation feel compelled to prop up our culture in this way, right? Right. And the the uh, one of the issues, and and you know, I'm sure a lot of people have seen you know people saying things that really seem pretty, um, you know, just tone deaf over the past couple of weeks um, is that this impacts people who are like extremely reliant on driving and really limited on what they can spend and already don't have a lot of discretionary spending. And so while, you know, if it's a good goal to become more energy independent, to have more options, um, that's not something that can necessarily happen overnight. And so it's going to hurt people who are poorest the worst. And that's, I mean, that that is a pretty big concern. I know the article talks about a lot of different things that people have brought up as options for like addressing this issue right now. People talked about extending work from home, which you know, to me, it seems kind of tone deaf because like, I don't know, my husband is not an internet worker. And like, to be honest with you, most of my friends are not like, I call them internet workers. That's me. I work on a computer. A lot of people don't like most of my friends don't. So that's just kind of, you know, I don't know. That just seems kind well, of a lot like of people writing articles. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, everybody could just work from home. <laughs> yeah. The journalists and the college professors they interview uh, would find that to be a really great solution, but the landscaper, uh, <laughs> not so great, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In fact, my husband has been at work for like 20 hours uh, cleaning up snow with a big crew of people, and they just can't do that from home. Maybe one day they'll have drones to do that. That would be pretty cool. Um, but the other thing has been electric cars. So another thing that to me seems a little bit tone deaf, I think it would be great if we all had 
electric cars, even though the energy is produced somewhere and I don't, I park on the street. So I think there's questions about infrastructure of how that actually would work and how you actually charge the car for people who don't like have a two car garage in the suburbs. (laughs) Um, But, but of course, you know, as a short term solution, uh, that doesn't really work because they're in short supply due to a global semiconductor shortage and other supply chain issues. And even if even if the feds were going to just buy everybody electric vehicles, um, because let's be real, like even if they subsidized it, there are plenty of people who can't really even afford a $5,000 car, let alone a $30,000 car, um, even if there's some kind of subsidy involved. Um, that's just not a meaningful short-term solution here. And then, you know, there's there's options for public transit system uh, investment. Again, not short-term. It's a good long-term approach, but not a good short-term um, option for us right now. Really, the only option that was brought up in this article that, you know, besides being personally resilient, is this idea of cities could create like more bikeways, more protected bikeways, um, and actually, you know, establish corridors that that are usable. So for people who could, you know, maybe commute, commute to their jobs or to wherever else they need to go um, using a bike, because bikes don't require oil, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Just the capability and energy of an individual. But that's not really going to work for the people who live 45 minutes away from where they work or more. Uh, and that's a drive, 45 minutes. So again, like I, I'm kind of stuck on like what what are we supposed to do? You know, there are lots of kind of long term things that people can do, and maybe things that we should have done a long time ago. And I, I guess the fundamental question here is: Are we going to continue thinking about these long term options as this crisis eventually? I, I'm assuming it'll eventually end. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe this is. Maybe this is the final heart attack and it, it will accelerate peak oil and and the party is over. Well, the only of those options that were listed in the article that actually scales and would scale quick enough to be meaningful is the idea of building walkable neighborhoods. And there's some people listening to us right now that are like, well, how do you take a name? It's actually like ridiculously easy to create more room for biking and walking, to allow people to open up businesses in neighborhoods, to respond to the needs of their neighbors. This could happen in a decade and be absolutely transformative if if we allowed it to, if we allowed it to evolve that way. When we step back and we say, you know, what are the options? What are the things that are, are, you know, possible right now. Um, will this, you know, will this continue on with, uh, or will this be like a reset? CNBC has been running this series of articles, the premise of which is over 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. I'm going to say this in a different way. In the most affluent country in the history of human civilization, the country where the typical person not only has, you know, uh, the largest uh, on average living space of any human civilization ever, but has on average 
uh, like 1.8 motor vehicles per family, uh, consumes, you know, $8,000 a year worth of petroleum products and other, it's, it's the, you, you go through the list of like things on and on and on that, that are measurements from a macroeconomic, uh, perspective of like the strength and health of our economy. And you look at all these things and you say, this is like the most powerful, wealthy, productive society ever. And then you get, actually get down to the humans within it. And you recognize that for more than half of them, if something unexpected occurred, their engine blew up, they get a broken arm, they uh, experience a job loss, they, you know, let's just go on and on to the things that happen all the time to people that they would be faced with financial ruin, bankruptcy, uh, not having food on the table. Like you step back and you say, th that is a system that does not make any sense. And, you know, there's there's been an effort um, among some to downplay the effects of inflation. There's been this really dumb argument that inflation is good. Yeah, uh-huh. You know, says the people in the 40%, not in the 60% paycheck to paycheck. Inflation is like devastating. And often um, it's coming from people who like make millions of dollars a year. <laughs> right. No, yeah. totally. And then and then you have, you know, the other side of this, which is, well, you know, we're having difficulties with gas prices. And so what we need to do is just go drill more oil, not recognizing, you know, who produces more oil a year, the US or Saudi Arabia? The U.S. by a long amount, <laughs> yeah. a long, a big, huge amount. We just use way, 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 way more than anybody else. And you, you, you look at these things, and it's hard not to step back and say, this historically is like the recipe for revolution. It's the recipe for mass social unrest, disruption. You know, throwing over the uh, the the system. This is the recipe for things going really bad, really, really quickly. And I hate to be that person. You know, I hate. I don't like. I don't look at this as being like. You know, it's the end of the world is nigh. But you know, at Strong Nouns, we always talk about being personally resilient. Have you take? You know, you get on an airplane and they say, put on your own mask before you help your neighbor. If you know you need to have an oxygen mask, um, are you able to put on your own personal oxygen mask and then help your neighbor? And to me, if if you can do those two things, you're in a much better position, regardless of what happens. Um, if you are dependent on 30, 40 gallons of gasoline a week in order to get food, get income, uh, get your kids around, you know, do whatever you have to do you are really, really, really fragile, really fragile. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think we'll leave it there. I'll let you uh, get off to the sunshine state. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I will I try to will think happy thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, I'm, and I'm dependent on, I'm a dependent on fuel for a while here now because I'm going to fly to Florida and back. But <laughs> right. if I got stuck there, that wouldn't be the worst thing, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that would actually be pretty awesome. <laughs> and I'd be very jealous. 
Um, well, before we get done, uh, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been reading or watching, listening to. Um, as we're having this conversation, I feel like what I have for the down zone is like <laughs> so relevant to what we're talking about. And I hadn't even thought about it, um, but I'll, I'll give it to you first. The downer zone. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to go first? Okay. Yeah, no, uh, so I watched a movie that was recommended to me on Netflix this week that I had actually never heard of. And I bet you've heard of it. It's called Margin Call. Have you seen this? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. so yeah, good. So for anyone, good. yeah, for anyone who has not seen it, it's a fictional drama. It takes place at the beginnings of the like 2008 financial downturn, I guess. Uh, it's about an investment firm that suddenly comes to the realization that their risk profile assumptions are like totally wrong because of volatility levels and mortgage-backed securities that are being exceeded. So in order to save themselves, they have this like big sell-off because they're one of the first firms to realize this, which essentially kicks off the financial crisis. So this movie does a really good job of like it almost feels like you're like on a fly on the wall watching these conversations happen as this firm is like making the decision to devastate the US economy. But they know they need to do that because like other firms will just do it before them. So they're trying to save their firm. And it's like, just really interesting to see the psychology of like, corruption and like the morality of decision making when people are responding to crises. So I just thought it was like probably one of my favorite movies now on this subject. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of movies <laughs> that are about this era. Um, but Margin Call is, I think, my favorite one. Margin Call is fantastic. You know, there, there's the I, I, the Wall Street movie and um, the Wolf of Wall Street. And, you know, all these are kind of the like over the top. Yeah, the the big short a little bit less so, but you know, those other ones are like this over the top kind of personification of the the Wall Street mover and shaker, you know, Gordon Gecko and all this. And mar margin call is actually a very like it's great acting and it's gr it's good drama, it's great tension. Yes. Jeremy Irons, the guy who plays the boss is amazing. I don't really even know who that person is, but that was some of the most compelling acting I think I've ever seen. Um, yes. And I, I can't, I can't remember the, I can't remember the actor's name and I feel bad about it. Um, but the guy who's in Beautiful Mind, he's the sidekick for Russell Crowe, Master and Commander. He's a sidekick. He's, oh, I can't uh, remember his Vision name either. In the MCU, yeah, uh, yeah, Paul, yeah. Paul Betty or Bettany, right? Yeah, that's who it is. It's just his character is so good. And the thing about this movie is that it's it's done so well. It's got great actors, but it's sober and and. I'm going to say, you know, I'm sure there are people who would quibble with this, but I think like the most realistic representation of the actual like lifestyle trade-offs you make to be a player on Wall Street. Because it, when it comes down to it, it's this idea that you're working together on a trade, we're making trades, but at the end of the day, every person is expendable, every relationship is expendable, 
everything is purchasable and and completely viable uh, so that the firm may live. And yeah. oh, what a just yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, it's incredible. I when the credits started rolling, I, I was just staring at the TV. Like that yeah. was an amazing movie. I think I'll watch it again uh-huh. this weekend. <laughs> yeah. I've watched it a few times. It's very good. I have been I have been uh on this journey, and I think I've mentioned this before, and I'm not gonna belabor it, but I've been doing this thing with with my church and and part of it you know, beyond giving up social media and, and some diet and exercise changes and, oh yeah, no, it's a pretty intense program. It's really crowded out a lot of my free time in life. And I, as a guy who goes through a book or sometimes two books a week, um, I have not been reading at all, uh, for the last five weeks. Um, I packed my bags for the trip we're going to embark on right now as soon as we're done here. And I put three books in my bag and I hope this coming week sitting on the beach with my wife and and kids that I can get through uh, three books. And I was going to say, here's what they are. And I got to tell you, I don't even remember. Like I'm, I just, I had like a stack of like 20 and I picked three that looked the best. I picked the hunter gatherers guide to the 20th century. Um, That was one of them. It's a book about evolutionary biology, um, and it it looks really, really good. I picked two others, and I can't think of what they are now, but I'm just going to go and read. That's my plan yes. for this week. Sit on a beach, read a book. A beach and read. I'm so jealous. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I'm well, a pale Norwegian, and so beaches to <laughs> me are not like – the most fun place, but my, my wife and kids love it. And so I usually try to find some place shady to just sit and read. So that's what, that's my, that's my plan. Yeah. I mean, so we went to Florida a year ago at this same time. Um, and we, we went and stayed with a friend of mine who like lives in this giant building, like with a pool on the roof and everybody's really pretty and tan. (laughs) And like my husband and I were just looking at each other like, wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we are oh, very pale yeah. and like, yeah, yeah. wake up it's call. It's the Minnesota. <laughs> the, the thing about Florida that is actually nice though, is that because all these Minnesotans and Canadians, et cetera, flock there this time of year, uh, there's a lot of paleness. And so you don't feel... Um, <laughs> <laughs> my my kid wanted years ago my kid wanted me to bring my youngest one wanted me to bring her to the the Disney water park and I'm just like I'm pale I'm out of shape da 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 and I got there and I'm like oh oh she's a bunch of like <laughs> overweight super pale people You're going like, on I look uh, great. water slides so I'm like <laughs> yeah. yeah I fit in just fine <laughs> yeah. yeah there you yeah. go uh-huh. All right. Well, I will let you go. Have a very good time. Enjoy Thank your you. vacation. And I will see you in Oklahoma City in a few weeks. I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be super fun. All right. Well, thanks again. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Bye-bye. Bye bye.